Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today William Vogley. He is senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. Yeah, okay. <laughs> William, thank you for joining us. Uh, you, you had an article in, in City Journal recently entitled The Truth About White Flight. That is our topic today. So, yes, sir, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mark. So, uh, first, I mean, white flight is something, it's a phenomenon that was discussed a lot in the 70s. But why don't you just give people a definition once again of what is white flight? After World War II, there were big population movements in the United States. One was the Great Migration that has been the subject of uh, uh, many books of, of blacks from the South to the northern uh, industrial cities. Around the same time, you had the growth of suburban America, uh, facilitated by things like the freeway system, uh, the GI Bill, and you had an exodus of whites who had grown up in large central cities to these new suburbs. So this was white flight. And the reigning theory of the case is that the whites who departed the big cities or the suburbs did so largely or in significant part to get away from the black migrants from the South. Uh, so there was a... Uh, the allegation goes a, a large component of uh, racial animus uh, motivating uh, this resortment of the American population. And this was during the 60s and 70s, primarily, when this was, was supposed to have happened? 50s, 60s, and 70s. Okay. It started in the 50s. Okay. Okay. And... We know about the decline of the American cities, the inner cities during those those decades. Was white flight part of a larger discussion, pinpointed as a primary cause of the collapse of a lot of inner cities? Indeed, it was. Um, and I'm old enough to remember um, uh, many uh, editorials and uh, Newsweek magazine covers about the, the, the plight of the cities and how... Uh, the, the tax base had migrated to the suburbs and the cities were going to be uninhabitable for anybody but the very rich and the very poor. So the, the theory was that the, the suburbs had, in effect, uh, ruined the cities, had made um, 
places that had formerly been nice to live, scary uh, wastelands. And it was, you know, during these uh, during these years, um, you had uh, you had a whole genre of uh, of dystopian um, uh, movies, especially about New York, uh, that came out. Serpico and the the taking right. of Pelham one two three and um, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver and uh, the French Connection and um, you know everyone sort of pictured it as something that Dante might have considered but would have left out of uh, the Inferno is <laughs> just too far fetched. And I remember hearing you know as a teenager I, I heard you know just you know by in the background these these ideas of white flight but it seemed to go away in over the course maybe of the eighties and nineties. But the the thesis have, has come back recently. Uh, why is that? It's part of the larger um, argument or uh, moral panic over um, systemic racism. Um, the idea that America is is pervasively racist, and that you can have structures and practices and attitudes that thwart black people's aspirations. So the the uh, the notion that that this allegedly pervasive desire of white Americans to live at a great geographic remove from black Americans is part of the argument that the, the whole point of American life, the whole point of the American experiment is to make black people miserable and to make their lives uh, a burden. It's quite an allegation to, to make. And one of the most prominent voices for this is one with which you begin your your article, Michelle Obama, who remembers growing up in, in Chicago and said that she, she still feels a, quote, sense of injustice uh, over the ways in which whites abandoned the neighborhood. Uh, now, the first point I would make is, how could a, a multimillionaire lionized celebrity who's been at the heights of power for many many years now how could she possibly feel this way what is what is the pathology of i still feel the the, it's it's a living wound for her Uh, before we get to your your examination of what really went on here do you do you have anything to say about the mindset that pushes this thesis today? One relatively benign and one more critical. The benign one is that um, um, childhood experiences, you know, tend to live in in most people for a long time. They're not easily gotten over. Michelle Obama was born in uh, 1964. So she she grew up in a world that was working through the, the... the consequences of the America that was left to us by the legal and, let's say, the legislative and judicial um, uh, landmark um, uh, advances of the civil rights movement. So, uh, you know, I think that many people carry these things with them for, for reasons that are maybe don't make sense, but are nevertheless, they're so common that it's perhaps not that, that fair or to, to criticize. The, the more critical thing I would say is that since the rhetorical and sort of moral sea we swim in is one that has made aggrievement and uh, victimhood 
the coin of the realm, then the incentives are very strong. Even if you're rich and famous and uh, uh, your life has brought you, <laughs> brought you a great many uh, uh, triumphs, you still have every reason to make your case to the public by emphasizing the, the, the bad things that have been done to you or to people who are in your demographic uh, category. Michelle Obama first became famous when her husband was starting his presidential campaign now uh, like 13 or 14 years ago, when sort of the first thing she had to walk back was when he had won a couple of primaries and her comment was, for the first time in my life, I feel proud of, of my country. Yeah. First time. Not, not when she went to one of the super elite universities in the world, in, in New Jersey, in Princeton. Not then. Not, uh, not, not when she... Not when Barack Obama was elected senator. And she she was a senator's uh, wife there and what? Nope, not then. Only 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 when bro. Hmm. Okay. Well. <laughs> so all right, all right. Let's get to your your thesis. You say that the truth of white flight is a lot more complex. That that there is something quite different going on, and that if if there is a racism factor, it it's a pretty minor part of many other things. And I don't know if you want to get to that with the general statement, or I can let you. Pose, if you wish, a counterexample to Michelle Obama's memories of Chicago during these years, which comes from Guy Rotella. Uh, either way, uh, uh, William, take your choice. Yes. Uh, so shortly after, when she was a little girl, um, uh, Michelle, uh, her, her maiden name was Robinson. So Michelle Robinson's family moved to a, a neighborhood South Shore, which um, people who don't know Chicago uh, have have a rough idea of uh, the fact that the University of Chicago, uh, one of its most famous institutions, is located in the Hyde Park neighborhood, and South Shore is just uh, east. So it's bordered on, as, as the name implies, by Lake Michigan to the east, and um, Hyde Park to the west. And uh, Michelle, speaking now when she's 55 years old in 2019 at an Obama Foundation summit, held in Chicago uh, in a uh, informal discussion uh, moderated by Isabel Wilkerson, whose uh, book, The Warmth of Other Sons, is about the uh, great migration of blacks from the South. And Michelle was on the stage with her uh, brother, who is uh, achieved uh, notoriety, uh, rather uh, prominence as a uh, college basketball coach. They, so they were talking about their Chicago childhood, and she, these were not prepared remarks, but just interview question answers. She, she said, yes, I've, we moved into the neighborhood, and uh, white people uh, fled, and uh, th this was uh, simply um, overnight, trucks were packed up, and, and my, my kids, white kids I'd played with uh, and known had uh, disappeared, and um, she has a, a single-factor analysis. This is because of white uh, uh, racism, of, of uh, an aversion to uh, living um, next to blacks. And indeed, uh, the neighborhood of South Shore, speaking of the University of Chicago in the 1920s, their sociology department treated the city as it's, uh, it was going to do a uh, lot of its analytical work there. So for its purposes, it divided 
this uh, sprawling city then of over 3 million people into 77 identifiable neighborhoods. And South Shore, one of the 77, did indeed uh, go from, um, as is, is, uh, Mrs. Obama says in her uh, memoir, it went from about 96% white in 1950 to 96% black in 1980. The big change took place when she was a little girl in the 60s, when it went from, I think, about 90% white in 1960, according to the census, to 70-something percent black by 1970. So there was a deed. It's um, like the Hemingway line. Things changed slowly and then suddenly. And my article is a response to her argument, which is not hers alone. Many other people in academia and journalism take the position that that white racism, the the irrational desire of and, and of, of white people to avoid living near black people explains the phenomenon of white flight. I make the case that it's more complicated because there are both pull factors and push factors. The pull factor principle is that for reasons that had little or nothing to do with race, a great many people wanted to leave the cities for lower population density living. The idea of taking advantage of the the post-war economic boom to uh, move away from crowded streets and apartments and uh, get a home and a piece of grass, a little patch of land of one's own, this this was uh, very strong. And the, the fact that this, w- this was a fact by itself can be um, seen in the fact that um, in many cities that experienced white flight, the departing whites drove their moving vans right past other neighborhoods within the city. They had a demographic mix basically the same as the suburbs they went out to. Even, even today, uh, there are still mostly on the northwest side of Chicago, there are still a fair number of neighborhoods that are, are predominantly white. So if avoidance of black people is the, the whole motivation, you don't have to go that far uh, to accomplish it. The fact that people went over the city line suggests that these other considerations were uh, of real significance. The, the push factor, uh, which is something I discuss in, in more detail as, as the essay goes on, is that um, uh, crime rates um, skyrocketed in the 60s and 70s. As South Shore uh, became a, a black neighborhood um, and as whites moved out, it became one of the most dangerous in Chicago. And this, this is the thing that I think led to the sort of uh, acceleration of the, the, the white flight. Once you've reached what uh, people who study this call a tipping point, then in short order, nearly everyone who can find a way out is going to take it. The reason crime shot upward, what are the explanations that, that uh, sociologists or criminologists give for that, that 60s crime web? That would be a hard question to answer, even if it, it didn't touch on a lot of uh, sort of sensitive uh, political questions. I think there. I don't think that. I don't think there is a consensus as to certainly not anything like a sort of 
single factor X caused Y is either as to why crime rates shot up in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And more recently, uh, there's, there's still no consensus as to why they, they plunged in the 90s. Hmm. Clearly, part of it was a function of public policy. The sort of uh, reigning uh, ethos among um, law professors, scholars, activists in the 60s and 70s was that crime was a manifestation of underlying uh, social problems. And the argument was that it was you were wasting your time trying to police your way out of uh, this problem. So the argument was that until and unless you did something dramatic, a Marshall Plan for our cities scale dramatic about the root causes that led to crime, you were not going to see a reduction. And just below the surface of that argument was the implication that living through a crime wave was sort of not only a inevitable consequence, but in a, in a sense, a deserved consequence of failing to address these root causes, that, that we had only our, ourselves to blame for the high rates of felonies in, in the cities. You offer uh, the Guy Rotella counterexample. What was Guy Rotella's memory? Of those years, uh, Carlo Carlo Rotella. Oh, I'm sorry, Guy Rotella. Guy Rotella is a, is a prof- he, he is actually another professor, Carlo Rotella. Rotella, correct? Yes, yes. Guy Rotella is in my field. He was in my field of American literature. Uh, I put that down in my notes. And <laughs> okay. sorry. I, I wonder if they're uh, wonder if they're related. Yeah, uh, because uh, b- both Carlo Rotella's parents were um, were academics. They were. They moved to uh, South Shore uh, because it was close to Hyde Park. And precisely because of the white flight exodus, uh, you had a a great buyer's market for people who were willing to overlook the the problem of crime and and all of the things that happen after a neighborhood has a lot of crime problems. For example, empty storefronts become common because people running shops find they can no longer safely or profitably do business. So that means that um, a place like South Shore becomes... um, is uh, to use a, a recent bit of jargon, a food desert. The only you can't really go grocery shopping because without taking a significant trip somewhere else in the city, um, and the only place, the only food for sale are um, you know it, it, it little bodega type stores that don't really have much in the way of produce or anything. So junk food is is all that could be easily procured. This is all. You know, a sort of uh, the domino effect that, that leads to, to uh, this kind of outcome. So, Carla Rotella is a journalism professor at Boston. Is it Boston University or Boston College? Um, I think I think BU. I think BU. And by um, probably not a happy coincidence for either him or uh, Mrs. Obama. I mean, I think Carla Rotella's politics are, are much closer to hers than they are to mine. No, he's at Boston College. Um, uh, he wrote a book that came out in 2019 called The World is Always Coming to an End about growing up in South Shore and going back to the uh, uh, neighborhood as an adult and sort of taking stock of what it's gone through and what its prospects are. And he is certainly not uh, trying to, uh, in in any sense in this book, take issue with the, with the Michelle Obama thesis. However, he's a he's a very good writer and honest reporter, I think. And he um, in 
the course of, of sort of telling the neighborhood story, he makes what lawyers would call admissions against interest. He, he sort of relates the, the facts about growing up in that neighborhood in the 60s and 70s till he left for college, you know, in the early 1980s. And, and he says crime was, it's not the whole story. There's other things going on, but it was, it was a real big problem. He, he tells this terrible story about a kid's store, a toy store called We Folks, whose owner, who was a sort of beloved neighborhood figure, is uh, fatally shot in a robbery by a black kid who's a member of a gang. And he, he says that for many people in the neighborhood, this was this was really the day that the the writing on the wall became just unmistakable. The South Shore was no longer a, um, a place to live if you had any alternatives. People went through different things, but he, he says the people who left all had their sort of enough is enough moment. And most of these moments involved some sort of criminal activity. So I sort of used his book as a corrective to her complaint. When you talk about the experience of, of seeing, you know, crime happen and you, you've got kids, this has led to another phenomenon that you brought up in, in your essay, black flight. What is black flight? It's white flight by black people. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's um, uh, folks uh, who live in um, neighborhoods like South Shore who have the, as prosecutors say, the means and motive to go to, to other places to live. The, the Tribune a couple of years ago, Chicago Tribune, um, had a story about a, a, a young black couple living in uh, South Shore. In fact, they, they had a house on, on the block where Michelle Obama grew up. And uh, their enough is enough moment came when a 20-year-old uh, young man walking his younger brother to school, and presumably for safety reasons, uh, was himself shot for some senseless and, and, and completely outrageous reason. And the, um, the young woman, um, with uh, two young children says, if something happened to our kids while, I, while we were holding on to South Shore, um, while we were insisting on living in Chicago because of, of, you know, the shorter commutes and the cultural amenities and this and that, he said it would, it would, just, it would just crush me. So at the time this story ran, which I think is about three years ago now, they were um, discussing with the, uh, with the uh, writer their plans to move to a new house they were building in northern Indiana. So South Shore's population just in the past decade or so has declined by about 20 percent as this in this predominantly black neighborhood, about 10 or 15,000 people have fled for for other places. And it's this is not just a, a, a South Shore or Chicago phenomenon. This uh, the, there's sort of another great migration of of uh, blacks to suburban areas uh, within uh, the big cities that their grandparents moved to half a century ago, and uh, to a significant degree, northern blacks who grew up in in such cities moving back to the south. One of the sub plots for the Democratic Party's recent successes in the state of Georgia is that that state uh, has a larger black uh, voting population than it did uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago because of the, re the reverse great migration. You, you know, uh, I was on a radio show a couple of years ago, and it was, uh, I think, during the 2016 election, 
when the host uh, talked about uh, the Republican Party, the Republican Party reintroducing voting restrictions for blacks in the South. And I said to the host, well, you're going to have to tell all those African-American young people and families who are moving massively to the South. Do they know that they're entering into a, a racist atmosphere? Uh, he, he didn't have a response. Charles Blow, the uh, New York Times columnist, devoted a, a column last week to the thesis that blacks throughout the North and the West should move back to the South to make all of the Southern states majority black once more. And from that basis, wield the kind of power that they are reaching for now but cannot otherwise attain. Okay, a new Southern strategy. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, all right, last question about a, a, a totally different phenomenon uh, that you bring up, and that is gentrification, which is led mainly by whites, correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah, the, the children and grandchildren of the, uh, the white flight exodus from uh, the, the post-World War II era began in the, uh, you know, I think I first heard the word yuppies in about 1982. So young urban professionals. So these were kids who uh, decided that, you know, city living, uh, we, we've, we've heard all those years we were growing up in the suburbs, we heard nothing but disdain for the sterility and stupidity and uh, uh, bigotry of, of white suburban life. We're going to go uh, be much hipper to live in the cities. Fortuitously, uh, a few years later, the crime rates actually go down. So it's not only now, um, uh, I mean, there, I was, I was living in, uh, happened to be living in, in uh, New York City uh, in uh, the 80s and 90s, which I guess makes me sort of a yuppie myself at the time. Um, and there were some New Yorkers, for example, who actually complained about the drop in crime, that they, they liked their city better when it was grittier and more dangerous because yeah. instead it was Times Square, you know, you, you probably heard this, it, it felt too much like, uh, looked like Disneyland and Yuppies, they didn't like yeah. all these tourists. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, and well, well, I mean, one, actually one, one factor is that the, uh, that, yeah, they, they bring more economy, more capital into, into these areas, but that makes housing rates go up. Uh, yes, that's right. Although the extent to which that is true, I think, is a, a contested question. Yeah, and and it 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 seems that the, the 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 tensions between people who've lived in a neighborhood a long time, including where gentrification becomes most politically controversial, is when you have an influx of whites in their twenties and thirties with with the graduate degrees and and. Uh, holding jobs and, and sipping cappuccinos into a neighborhood that's, that's been predominantly African-American. That's where you hear the arguments about we can no longer afford or our, to live in the neighborhood we, we used to live in or our kids have to move far away, that kind of thing. One fellow wrote a book about Washington, D.C., where they have very rigid rent control and have worked hard to prevent this sort of black flight in response to this white influx. And it, it turns out that that even if you frustrate all of these sort of residential real estate economic consequences, 
you still have a great deal of, of tension tied to gentrification simply because it's like the, the neighborhood is at one level integrated. You have black people and white people living on the same block, shopping in the same store. But in the sort of psychological and micro sociological level, it's still segregated. You have you have two different communities inhabiting one physical space. Huh. The, the essay is The Truth About White Flight. It's in the autumn 2020 issue of City Journal. William Vogley, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.